I'm having this moment. I've never said Fanny be tender. It was unlimited. I mean, <laughs> a word. So anyway, I know that song too, but not by Fanny. Very it's a learning fun. moment. Hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who spent their Sunday nights with Casey Kasem and learned the bus stop in gym class. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. So today, we'll be saving the legacy of the Bee Gees. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. We'll make you happy. Today's episode is an emergency meeting of the Pop Culture Preservation Society. We were supposed to be talking about Judy Bloom, and then I watched the HBO documentary feature on the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, directed so by so Frank good. Marshall. So the documentary ended, and I immediately started crying and texting people. And Michelle was like, Kristen, just calm down. We'll turn it into an episode. But I found out it's not just me. And according to both my feelings and the internet, this documentary is just begging for a discussion. Because apparently the morning, did you guys know this? The morning after it premiered on HBO, Barry Gibb woke up to 900,000 comments on his that, social media account. That's crazy. Oh my gosh. I am serious. When I saw that, you guys, I was like, oh, this is the legacy right here. Right. Right. This is it. 900,000 people are all about the Bee Gees right now. So um, I ca- I texted them crying and it was like definitely <laughs> night, night time. So I was, I wanted to talk about it. I was like, let's like, record Christian. a podcast episode right now. We'll talk about <laughs> it tomorrow. We'll do tomorrow. Go to bed. So go to bed. Watch it right then. Um. So what did you, how did you guys feel after watching it? I mean, I was, other than emotional, obviously, I was just struck by how educational I found it. Um, Like, okay, you guys, please don't throw me in 70s fangirl jail for saying this. But um, I had no idea the Bee Gees were such a thing before they had beards. Like, they (laughs) were they were were big time like back in the 60s um and they were young like i didn't recognize them and i was i was almost embarrassed that thankfully i was watching with my husband and both of us were like you don't say or wow like they were they were big like the beatles you know yeah Yeah. okay can i I tell you a story yeah in in fourth grade when saturday night fever is like the shit it's what everybody is talking about whether they've seen the movie or not laura williams brought a Bee Gees album to school for show and tell. And it had these five guys with beetle haircuts on it and like pirate shirts on. And it said the Bee Gees on it. And we were like, what in the hell is that? Where are are you talking about? We almost didn't believe her. We didn't know what was happening. And she's like, my mom swears this is the Bee Gees. (laughs) Well, if anything, oh, and another thing that I'm also locked in my fangirl jail cell about you guys i'm so embarrassed to admit this but i'm going to because you know maybe there's other people that will um feel this way i didn't know robin and morris were twins oh yeah you do have to go to jail and today's their birthday (laughs) no really today is their birthday okay cheers everybody hold up your glass because we drink while we podcast well now that we're recording this and at night, which is odd, we usually record in the day. We're all in our yeah. closets at home. We record via Zoom. We all could have a little a little cocktail. Mm-hmm. No driving. Right. No, nope. no, that's nope. right. Anyway, so I was, yeah, I was shocked that they were twins. I'm embarrassed to say that. But when you go back to like those those early albums that I just discovered, you guys, those are now my new favorite BG songs. Because oh, did I you know. know them? Did you? No, no, no. Yes, no, um, no all no. the words. Well, I, I knew, I knew, I started yeah. a joke. I knew I started a joke. But my new favorite Bee Gees song is Massachusetts, and um, I will be embarrassed to say I also would really like the Ed Sheeran version of it because he's like one of my top five favorite like artists. But I now, the past weeks since I've watched it, I made a playlist, but it has mostly all the early stuff on it, and I really love it. It's like I, it's like a whole new catalog of music opened up to me. So I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I'm also very grateful. 
Okay, wait. Mm-hmm. There is an official playlist on Spotify for the HBO documentary. Oh. And I'm sure if you put in Bee Gees, that will pop up right away. It just says, how can you mend a broken heart? Hmm. And I've been listening to it nonstop since I watched okay, it. It's making everything note. from beginning to the end. Well, I'm excited for the new album. So he's having, it's called Greenfields and coming out, gosh, in a couple weeks in January. And a few of the um, songs have already, you can already get on Apple Music and stuff. But it is, um, he's doing these collaborations with artists of today and mostly country and indie kind of Americana artists. So um, Keith Urban, he does one with, and um, is it Jason Isbell and... um, Miranda Lambert. And so I listened to it a Brandy little bit. Carlisle. There's yes, a Dolly Parton, Brandy, right? Oh, I love Brandy yes, Carlisle. Yes, there's a Dolly Parton. Did he write it? I think he might do it? Islands in the Stream with her. So um, anyway, it just looks really, really neat. So I okay, can't here's wait. My, here's my angst about that. So oh, I see this album that's coming out. This is Gen X angst. I okay. see this new album coming out and Jimmy Fallon holds up the actual vinyl, right? And I think to myself, I want to buy that. I want to own it. But in today's way of consuming music, I'm going to go to my phone and I'm going to do what? Am I going <laughs> to just find it on Spotify and then just listen to it? I, I can't hold it in my hands. I, don't I mean, think obviously, I can go and buy the vinyl, but it's I can't go down to Musicland like I used to and, and buy that 12 by 12 thing. Damn I progress. just have a lot of, I know, seriously, that's, that's a whole podcast episode right there is the thing that I want to hold in my hand and own. Mm-hmm. Well, you do. You just showed us how many Bee Gees albums are surrounding you right now? Twelve? Um, nine. I have <laughs> oh, nine. I have nine. How, ma- how many are there total? Do we know? I don't know. That's a really good question because I am, I'm a retroactive collector. These are not ones that I owned when I was a kid. I didn't even have Saturday Night Fever, even though I listened to it nonstop at Lizzie Flynn's house. Um, maybe that's why I didn't have it because I just Shout out to Lizzie yeah. Flynn. Hello, Lizzie <laughs> Flynn. Um, yeah, so these are all things that I've collected um, just recently within the last... 10 years, really. Okay, so the um, the documentary, I have to say, I've seen all the documentaries. I've seen every single one. They don't touch this one. This one is so far and away uh, more elevated than any of those that I've ever seen. And it, it opens up with their 1979 concert. Um, that was really the pinnacle of their of their of the Bee Gees fervor, right? And so mm-hmm. it opens with this energy, this like it's on fire, it's this electricity. Right. And then you he does this sonic thing throughout the entire thing where he will isolate pieces of each song. He'll isolate a track. So it opens with this this concert and just the bass line from Stayin' Alive. And yeah. it gives you goosebumps. Goose uh, everywhere goosebumps it's crazy and then even visually i think it was really elevated they have these really bright bold graphics and then the vintage footage that they would put in between right wasn't that great it was Mm -hmm. almost like straight out of instagram it was like the whole thing was in amaro right had this sort of 70s 60s sort of filtery look to it and then i don't know if you guys did this but did you look for signs when they did street scenes and things like that you could see signs for like um for stride right shoes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. In the old cars. It was so, really yeah, cool. it was so great. And I also thought that just having the interview footage <clears throat> of the poor dead departed Bee Gees was yeah. brilliant because it almost like has that footage, did they grab that from some, like a different documentary or has that just been yeah. footage that's just been sitting there somewhere? It's from a number of documentaries. Because yeah. we were watching it, our 25-year-old daughter was um, sitting, She, I don't know how much she was actually watching. She was sitting on the couch. I think she watched it all too. But um, she, you know, she was kind of like, wait, is this one dead? Is, I mean, that sounds really awful to say, but you know, she, because you, the way they just kept throwing them in, you almost didn't know. Like she'd be like, dead or not yeah. dead? dead or not, you know, and then, and then they were getting them, you know, she was getting them confused Mm -hmm. a little bit, but I thought that was really well done. How you still got to hear their, their takes and their perspectives and their opinions on everything. You still got their voices in it, even though they're not here anymore. They were still very much a part of it. And yet it was very much Barry's story because when they opened with the exciting electricity of that concert, it then cuts to Miami 2019 and you see the sparkling water and you hear Barry's voice current day. And he says, I'm beginning to understand nothing is true. All my family is gone. All I have are my memories. And the story begins. I mean, it's just 
so brilliant. And you're hooked right there. You're going to yeah. sit there for two hours. Well, you're then it comes full anywhere. circle with that last line that makes oh, you just Lord. cry. Oh, okay. We'll yeah. hold on that one yeah. because we can't, st- we can't cry at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, crying and wine. I'm going to take a slug of wine well. right, right now. <laughs> they won't go well together. But I was, um, amazed at all of the early footage, like the the family footage of when they were kids. Like, did you know back then that your kids were going to be super famous and this was going to come in handy? Because I I mean, for my family, we have a little bit of Christmas morning footage and stuff like that. But (laughs) if this pop, I mean, if our podcast ever makes it really big and they're going to do it on us, I don't know how much early footage there was, but that um, that helped so much um, in getting that sense of family and and part well, of that, that was- might be because they started out in Australia as a band when they were literally ages five and nine. And from the ages of five and nine, when Barry got that first guitar, they started performing and trying to get on shows and trying to record. And so there must have been something about Huey and Barbara Gibb mm-hmm. who were like, let's record these guys because they're going to be famous. But didn't you think that just added all that old footage to it added to one thing that struck me about this uh, story is just the tremendous love that that was in that family. I know that they broke up and that there was, you know, fights between them, but not only with um, what Barry's saying today, but just throughout it. And especially with the footage, um, I just got. I just felt a very tremendous um, love in that family. They they were so proud and loved Andy so much. Like, gosh, just watch watch how proud they were when they got to have Andy on stage with them. And um, they weren't resentful. You know, he had the number one when they didn't. And they were so proud of that. But it was, I just felt like even through all their difficulties, they there was just a lot of love between them. And I felt that. It was, I think... I think when you think about the way people love the Bee Gees, I think that's one of the reasons. I think that's one of the reasons that people were attracted to them is because there was so much love there, even though they did break up and they did have their disagreements. And I do have to say, the minute, the first time that Andy came on the stage, <laughs> you guys, I gasped a little bit. <laughs> of course you I did. I really did. Okay, so there's part of there's part of the ten year old me having a crush, right? And we've seen all of the all of the little clips on Solid Gold and we've seen him with the open jacket with his guitar doing I just want to be your everything we've seen all that stuff over and over again so I'm used to it right the first time they showed Andy in a clip that I'd never seen before where he's just like riding on a jet ski Mm -hmm. or having Mm -hmm. a conversation I was like oh my god he was a person Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can blow people up into these ethereal icons and you forget that they're real people. And yeah. I thought one thing that they did really well in this documentary was they treated Andy as a person, a mm-hmm. full person instead of just a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. And how you could tell how much they loved him. And I didn't realize that he had just agreed he was going to be the fourth BG. When I didn't either. That, it was like, I felt like looking after watching this, they were lending him kind of a lifeline, in my opinion, like, it's going to be okay, you're going to be part of us, mm-hmm. we're going to do this together, because, you know, he tried to get back into the swing of things and never really could. And I just felt like that was heartbreaking in that sense that they were, they mm-hmm. were going to be there for him and join us and his baby brother. I mean, they protected him even in professionally, they were going to protect him. Yes. Yes. And, but I agree, Kristen, with that. It, he wasn't, it wasn't the Andy Gibb, you know, true Hollywood story, tragic um, story. I appreciated that too, that it was just kind of a footnote because to be honest with you, I, when they had that, you know, the little words at the end of, you know, how they, how they passed away, um, and you're talking about the dedication at the end of yeah, the Yeah, at the end. Where, well, yeah. where they just kind of showed, no, they like where they said, they explained how each of them died. Oh, oh, okay. But yeah. it wasn't like that to me. That was just sort of a footnote. That wasn't like what this was about. And I, I appreciated that, that, you know, you watch a lot of documentaries where then it's like, and then tragedy struck, you know, and then he, he spiraled into a terrible drug, you know, problem. It wasn't about that. It was more about their successes and um, their hard work. And I think too, I loved the, um, the current, um, you know, like Nick Jonas and Justin Timberlake. And I loved oh, yeah. how they were showing a lot of current, you know, stars 
commenting on the influence of the Bee Gees. And I think that, you know, when we talk about how they broke up for a little while, but yet they still loved each other, that's that's understandable. I love how they had Nick Jonas yeah. in that part. Stepping Can I just up to talk read about a that. list? Can I just read a list of the of the people who were interviewed for this? Because it is a stellar list. Eric Clapton, Noel Gallagher from Oasis. Hello, how fine is he? Oh, I know. <laughs> Seriously, right? I did not know that Noel Gallagher was for me, um, but apparently, you know, in in Adam life, the list, right? Um, Justin Timberlake, Nick Jonas, Mark Ronson, Chris Martin, and then Chris Martin from Coldplay, and then mm-hmm. a whole bevy of producers and musicians and wives. So the people that they interviewed were fantastic. Um, the Justin Timberlake was cracking me up because, of <laughs> course, Justin Timberlake plays Robin in the Barry Gibb talk show with Jimmy Fallon, right? <gasps> That's right. Right? Yes. Which could be my favorite SNL of all time it's like he has robin just nailed completely um but i think it's funny because justin timberlake says in his interview i'm really not high right now (laughs) i think you are (laughs) watch his eyes when he says that go back and watch it we we had to like we had to pause that for a minute because we're like uh classic um okay but the fine piece that is noel gallagher this was a beautiful (laughs) quote because of course he was in a band with his brother so he you can when he's speaking of brothers singing together, you know he's speaking from a very true place. And he says, brothers singing is like an instrument, but you can't buy it in a store. But he was almost saying it with a little bit of envy because I got the feeling that he didn't have that sound with his mm-hmm. own brother. And he wanted that for himself. Yeah, I was thinking um, just that piece of working with your siblings like that. We each of us have... Um, siblings and it's a those are complicated relationships when you're not professionally involved with them let Mm -hmm. alone um having to add this level of um just of stardom and competition competition. exactly took the words right yeah exactly Mm -hmm. it was um it made it all the more um I don't know, meaningful and also just how important family was to them. Like I didn't realize how long, not that I judge people by how long they've been married or anything, but you know, stars often can kind of go through. And those guys, I mean, I guess all three of them are maybe married once before, but their marriages were very long lasting. I mean, they, um, they all had marriages that lasted well over 20 years. Yeah. Is Barry's Uh, wife still alive? Yes. Yeah. Okay, because she was never on. Well, she was never yeah. on screen. Like currently, they just had her voice. So I, yeah, I mean, I figured she was alive, but also they were having the other ones talk that were dead. Yeah. I was like, did they record that? <laughs> um, yeah, they were like, man, that was a beautiful couple. Yeah, no, so you said fifty years. Is that right? Fifty Chris? years. They got married in nineteen seventy. Yeah, and she was only like nineteen or something. Yeah, uh-huh. think of what she's seen. Whew. I know that's, all of them. Okay, amazing. can I just? I just have to throw this in quickly. Um, so there are Gibb children, obviously, and they all grew up in Miami. And um, Colleen of the, oh, maybe I should take that. Maybe she should be the, an anonymous teacher. Um, an anonymous yeah. teacher <laughs> from <laughs> Miami um, once had some Gibb children in her classroom. <gasps> hmm Parent-teacher conferences? Did she have parents? No. 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 Oh. <laughs> no Did they, are they the parents that didn't show up? I I should I need a reminder of how that worked, but it's because of course we had this conversation in 1992, but I can't remember how the conversation <laughs> went. But because she's so lovely and such a good friend to me, when she came to visit me in Minnesota from Miami one Christmas, she brought. <laughs> I'm not going to say which Gib child it was, but okay. she brought that Gib child's copy of The Hobbit because oh, so she was the, she was the English teacher. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it says the, the student's name right <gasps> in the cover. <sighs> okay, mm-hmm. how did she never how was she never in touch? I was a teacher. How are you never in touch with their parents? We need to we need her we need to call in. Yeah, we need to we need to pick that apart a little bit and find out. Because mm-hmm. I can't remember I don't know why I don't remember all of this. I need I need a refresher course. That was interesting um, though. Now cause I now that you're saying that, there I think there was a picture or a, a an old like home movie clip where maybe it showed kids, but they didn't ever talk about that. So I don't they even really did. know how many kids each of them have. Another reason I'm sitting in jail. How they made, so that's part of the beauty of this documentary is they, I think they really wanted this to be the legacy of the Bee Gees. And that is not without the drama of their families, but it was not a salacious inquirer oriented 
Um, but so are any of the kids musicians or yes. writers or in the, oh, they are. So uh, Samantha Gibb and Spencer Gibb, I hope I have that correct, are in a band called the Ghost Twins and you can find them on Instagram and they do really lovely stuff. I are really they like our age? <laughs> no, they are younger than us, but not by much. They're probably, uh, well, there's a huge span of them, but they're probably 10 to 15 years younger than us, most of them. Okay. Um, Okay, so there, one thing that I think is, like you said, Michelle, you did not know that there was pre-Saturday Night Fever Bee Gees, and their trajectory, I think, is just so, it's such a good story, how they start out with the pirate shirts, and they have, they have songs with titles like New York Mining Disaster 1941, and Every Lion-Hearted Man Will Show You, and I mean, there are titles that I can't, I can't get out of my mouth because I've never been able to remember. Um, Fanny be tender. Oh, Fanny be tender. Okay, I'll stop. Um, but I think what's interesting is how they go through eras in their, why are you laughing? <laughs> no, I'm just laughing because I know that song, but I've never said Fanny. You know, because is that the one, be tender with my love? Yes. Fanny be tender. Yeah, well, well it, it wasn't was a girl's name. I'm trying to think. What like I think Fanny. It would be like Oh, please be t- uh, It was never Fanny when I sang it. Like, I'm having this moment. I've never said Fanny be tender. It was, honey, be tender. I mean, it wasn't a word. So anyway, I know that song too, but not by Fanny. It's a learning moment. Yes, I love Fanny's it. a funny word. Which could be, I swear to God, I think Fanny be tender might be my number one BG song of all time. And that's pre-Saturday Night Fever. Huh. Yeah. Okay, so they do this pre this, you know, they're in the 60s. They break up in 1969. Almost, Michelle, when you were just dazed from being born. The right, cuz we're up. well, so you and you were just dazed from being one. I was dazed from being one year. Kristen old. and I are almost birthday twins by a year. Mm-hmm, almost. And so they um they come back together after breaking up and they they find they find a new sound, and it's How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. And this is a very melancholy yeah. sound, right? But they start, their people's interest in them starts to wane, and they get to the point where they're really um, like playing clubs. The people aren't there mm-hmm. for them anymore. And by 1974, they're thinking, oh, my God, is it over? Are the Bee Gees over? And so they need a new sound. And this was an interesting thing. I did not know that Eric Clapton was the one who said, hey, why don't you come to Miami and record at the studio where I've been recording? And when they're they're influenced by this entire new sound, which becomes the next album called Main Course, which I think now is my favorite one. It's bigger for me. Main Course is bigger. I'll show you. Would you guys like some show and tell? Yeah, while yeah. you're looking for that, didn't you guys love the little um, fun fact how when they got to the house in Miami, they all had to go do the pose by the oh, tree by the because they were, fan, they were fangirling too, like over yes. at Clapton. I love that. Absolutely. Oh, let me see. Wait, hold it back up. We're, okay, here's We're, we're trying parts. to look in Kristen's like tiny, like little Zoom squad cast box. And oh, it's um, it's like a naked lady on a spoon. Naked yeah. lady on a spoon. Serving her right up. Course. And so here is, influenced by the scene in Miami, here are the songs that they come up with. Nights on Broadway, Jive Talking, mm. Wind of Change, Songbird, Fanny Be Tender, <laughs> With My <laughs> Love. Mm-hmm. I want to come over, Kristen, and just have like a Bee Gees vinyl night when COVID's over. Oh, Wouldn't that be yeah. so fun, you guys? Yes, oh, it would. Let's do it. But yeah. let's have like really like retro cocktails and then we have to spend the night. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> It'll be a BG slumber party. Yeah. We're going to have a BG slumber party. Yeah. Okay. Here was a really, so when they make this transition, right, this, this was a beautiful quote for me is there is a, I wish I knew who this person was, but he was one of the interviewers was a professor. And he said, what they started to do was make music for the dance floor. And the, he said, can you make the body move? Can you make the body happy? Hmm. Oh my God. Can you make the body happy? That's oh. like a great tagline from most of their songs from 74 on, right? Like, think of really? Jive Talking. Seriously. You can't not dance when you hear Jive Talking. You Absolutely. can't not want to strap on a pair of roller skates mm-hmm. and pretend you can disco skate. Right? <laughs> you know, with like the front wheels. Like, you know how they like do the little move with like, and they kind of turn with the front wheels. <laughs> I wish I could do any really of those short things, shorts. but mostly all I can do is like go along the side with my hands, holding onto the wall. <laughs> I don't fall down. I could go down like really low. My friend could push me, <gasps> and we have like the races, what? you know, and like you have to go around the curves. And I was pretty good at that stand. Wow. We won a few times. Well, you shoot the duck. 
Yeah, well, like won a race. You had she like pushed oh. and she skated. I really just had to stay balanced like, on one <laughs> yeah, foot yeah. and the other foot out. Remember, mm-hmm. it's like shoot the duck because when you'd go to the roller yeah. rink, they would have. Um, I loved that one. Remember, like the referee guy who could do all that disco skating in the yeah. center, and he like rocked around with his whistle, and then he <laughs> um, he would blow the whistle, and it'd be game time, and and you loved it when he'd go out. He'd be like, he'd be like um, sliding around the floor with his cones. And it'd be like setting up the cones in the corners. <laughs> yes. and you knew, you knew four corners was coming and you'd be so excited. That was like the best or the shoot the duck. Yeah. That was yeah. like the best when you saw the guy come like gliding out with his cones. Okay. Oh but we yes. digress. Okay. So memory, when he though. finds out yeah. when he, um, what they find out on main course, this is where the Bee Gees are really born. Their second, their rebirth, right? Because somebody says to Barry Gibb, can you scream in tune? Oh, and he's right. like, well, all right, I'll try it. And in the screaming in tune, he finds his falsetto voice. That's in Nights on Broadway. And hello, here comes Saturday Night Fever. And and they were so successful that the, he, they start writing songs for that voice specifically. My dad thought this was hilarious. My dad thought that they sounded like cartoon characters. And he would imitate it all the time. And I was like, well, they are laughing all the way to the bank, Dad. So I would <laughs> shut your mouth. <laughs> and I I'm loved not- every minute of it. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, my dad kind of made fun of him, too. I think I'm embarrassed. I think I kind of I mean, I, I enjoyed all that music, but that was never I mean, I didn't find them attractive or anything. Mm-hmm. OK, no, um, I was thinking a documentary, though. Did you yeah. find? Like, yes. Yeah, there we go. All right. <laughs> I wish everybody could have just seen Karen's <laughs> face. She goes, she's like thinking and she looks straight at her little camera and her laptop and puts both fingers out and is like nods. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that what's so fun about all of this is getting to revisit these moments again as what was I thinking back then or not thinking like, well, whoa, Barry. Yeah, but no, 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 don't, don't be hard on yourself back then. Cause I thought of that too. I was thinking back then my mom had all these albums. So I list, I, all the album covers only from like 74 and up are very familiar to me, but that those were her albums. So we listened to the music all the time. It was on the radio all the time, but I mean, I was crushing on Andy Gibb, not, they were way older than us. So it's not weird that we weren't crushing on him then. No, I don't think because because Andy was around. If Andy hadn't been around, maybe we would have been. Also, let's be honest, Barry's the only good looking one. But if you go out there in internet world, there are people who are down with Robin. Yeah, people love Robin. They love Robin. Well, he had a sweet, sweet voice, but... Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think um, you just now, close your eyes and listen to him say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot. You, I could probably do nice. that. Yeah, I could probably. As do a grown-up lady, I um, am starting to see the appeal of Morris, Morris. and I yeah. think that yes. Morris Agreed. is the George Harrison of the Bee Gees. Right? He's the one who was cute, but you didn't know he was cute because he was so quiet. And then when he opened his mouth, he was super funny in this quiet way. And you're like, is oh. he the one that collected all the um, the police badges? Yes. I mm-hmm. love that f- fun fact yeah. about him. Also, Morris was the one who was like so sweet. Like he was the one who was trying to be like, don't fight. You don't guys fight, don't fight. Don't yeah. Yes. That broke my heart, that whole clip. Yeah. I know. Yes. And he's he the one who went. I, 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 I relate to that. And so I was like, oh, Morris, keep trying. When he knew he was going to marry his wife, didn't he say like that night in the, when <laughs> she was the waitress, like, I'm going to marry that woman. Mm-hmm. Saw her eyes. He saw nothing else. He saw her yes, eyes her and eyes. said, I'm going to marry that woman. Okay, so there's the falsetto, but here's the other cool thing that my dad made fun of. He called disco milking machine music, and he would do this imitation where he'd go, <laughs> except he would do it like he was milking a cow. That's a Minnesota reference. Like, we're not going to get that. Those of us who lived in suburbia, Houston, what? and Forty. the milking what? machine. Right, the milking machine. But what you find out in the documentary is that is a drum loop that they created because How? their drummer had to fly back to England because his mother was ill. And they're like, well, dang, our drummer is gone, but we have to record. What are we going to do? And so they took the pieces of drum recording that they already had and they spliced it. And they actually show in the documentary how they spliced it and put it together. Yes. And the podcast editor in me just had an even more of an affinity for that because I, I know what that's like to be at that board and have loops and need people to sound the right way. And I was just floored how they put that together. Yeah. And really that was the beginning of that whole, the, 
the way that you could do that in music. Yeah. Like they, that was an invention practically. Yeah. Well, what about the guy was holding it like on a, a like a mop yeah. handle or something? Yeah. Like he was holding all the tape. Like that had to be so groundbreaking mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, innovative. Innovative. Okay, so Robert Stigwood, their their manager, says, "Hey, I just bought the rights to um, this article. Not even a book. I wrote, I just brought the rights to an article. I want to make this article into a movie. It's called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, and um, it's going to star this guy who's a sweat hog on um, what the hell was that show? Welcome, welcome back, Cotter. Cotter. Yeah, the guy from oh, Welcome wait, Back. Who's Cotter. in Fangirl Jail now? Yeah, no. <laughs> Vinny Barbarino. Vinny Barbarino, and so." Ever, I'm sure everyone was like, what are you doing? But he calls the Bee Gees and he tells them he needs a couple of songs. They don't even read the script. They're like, well, here are these songs that we've been that we've been writing. And they're like, well, that's a soundtrack right there, except for one. And that was this was one of the most profound moments of the whole documentary for me. You guys, Robert yeah. Stigwood calls and says, Barry, I need you to write the most beautiful love song you've ever written. Yeah. How, how deep is your love? How deep is your love? That's my like number one BG song. Now, I mean, Massachusetts now is a tie for it, but right. that's that song gives me goosebumps. That's one of those songs we're going to talk about in an upcoming episode that gives you a lump in your throat. Absolutely. And the way they, so they interviewed Barry Gibb and Blue Weaver, who is the keyboardist. Those were the two people who were in the room creating that song. And they have actual tape of them in the writing session. That that is amazing. Like, how did they know to do that? I was amazed with that footage. It feels like the day they invented fire, right? (laughs) And the the whole place they were in, that like- It was a castle. Weird castle that didn't have any like plumbing and electricity. It was just this bizarre setting. So how did you guys- when they were interviewing, they would go back and forth. They would interview Barry about the song. Then they would interview Blue Weaver about the song. And both of them had quotes right there that I had to write down because I was getting all choked up. And they were too. As they're talking right. about this song, both of them mm-hmm. get eerie-eyed. And they say... You want me to sing oh. while you're looking? <laughs> yes, please. Would you need to know. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so Barry says, that is a memory that will last me all of my life. And his eyes get all glassy. And then Blue Weaver says, and they're in separate rooms, right? He says, my heart is in that song. And then they pl- they let the song play out and they keep the camera on Blue Weaver's face. And you guys, he was struggling. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. struggling to keep it together. How mean Doesn't he say like, it's be? the most beautiful. He says something like, in his whole life or something, it's the most beautiful or the most meaningful song or something. Um, which then I had to go, of course, and listen to it again. And then I was all teary because I was like, oh, right. it is. It's yeah. like, but now knowing, like, that's always been a song that when you hear come on the radio or something, it gets you. And you know all the words and you sing and it's beautiful. But now knowing that backstory. Oh, mm-hmm. it just adds all the more to it, right? Without yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And it reminds me, too, of when they were talking about how it just kind of came to be. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the song where they talked about the sun when it shone through the window. And yes. um, and I was really impressed with Chris Martin um, when he was talking about just what it is to be a songwriter and a musician. And you're kind of this, how did he explain it? Kind of like a vessel. I mean, something we talk about as writers, it's like we are just what it's passing through. And mm-hmm. you're if you're kind of there at the right time and you're riding the right, I think he equated it um, to surfers and, you know, catching the right wave. I mean, mm-hmm. the waves are there. You're If you're just there at the right time. And I just felt like um, that was a perfect description for what they experienced in that old castle in that room, that room. with that stained glass window and that piano mm-hmm. and that moment. It was just, it came to them and they were there to accept it and kind of put it that's out there. what it is it came to, i think he describes it like there are just all these songs swirling around in the ether and if you're lucky enough you'll catch one yes, of them yes yeah. exactly exactly okay so then um there comes a very dramatic moment in the documentary where a dj from chicago named steve Dahl <sighs> um organizes an event yeah. at comiskey park at comiskey park we called it um Growing up, we called it the Disco Sucks Rally. Um, 
and I'm just I'm going to describe it a little bit, but then I want to hear what, if you guys have any memories of it. But essentially, what happened was this was a uh, July twelfth, nineteen seventy nine. Steve Dahl was on; the, he was like a shock jock in Chicago, and he said to everybody, "If you come to the White Sox game at Comiskey Park on July twelfth, if you bring a disco record." You can get in for 98 cents, and then we're going to put all the records in the middle of the field, and we're going to blow them up. 50,000 people came. So do you, guys, do you guys remember this when you when you were kids? Do you remember it happening? Nope. <laughs> Not don't. at all. No. Okay. I do remember it happening, and I remember feeling very hurt. Mm. Um, and it was after that that – and I didn't associate it with the Bee Gees. I just associated it with disco – which was making my body happy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being very sad, not offended. I was hurt as if they had violated me in some way. And then suddenly you start seeing shirts that say, disco sucks. So what I did not know, this is a very important part of the doc- documentary for me, because I had only thought of it in terms of disco, end of story. But they interview an usher from the time mm-hmm. who was there. And yeah. he said, as the people walked in and threw their records into the dumpster, he's looking at the records they're putting in. He's like, that's not a disco record. That's not a disco record. He said, what they're putting in there is black people. Mm-hmm. They're yes. putting in the music of black people. And so what happened was... In his eyes, he was like, this was a book burning. This was yeah. a racist and homophobic book burning. Because what he also understood was that disco came from the gay community, from the gay clubs, mm-hmm. the gay nightclubs. Right. Um, and in that moment, I was like, this was a social moment uh-huh. in 1979, yep. which I had not realized. And it also made me remember um, going to my friend's house. To watch Dance Fever. Love Danny Terrio. Danny Terrio, right? And my friend was not that into Dance Fever, but her older brother was. I was like fifth grade. He was ninth grade. And my friend would leave. And the ninth grade friend Mm -hmm. and the the ninth grade brother and I would watch Dance Fever. And then we would practice. (sighs) And what I know now is that he was probably gay. Upon further um, reflection, I can see now that there were signs that this guy was gay and he was getting bullied at school because of his love for disco. Wow. And now I see a much fuller picture of that guy's experience, right? Mm -hmm. That he wasn't Mm -hmm. just being bullied for one thing. He was being bullied via a channel, via a musical Mm -hmm. channel. And it changes the trajectory of the entire story. It changes the meaning of the entire story. So that's the beginning of the backlash against the Bee Gees. And the thing that's beautiful about the documentary is that they intersperse. They're cutting back and forth between this rally and that giant concert in 1979, which was the pinnacle of the Bee Gees' success. And they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between these two things. Because what we now understand is that after that pinnacle concert experience, there would be a very sharp decline because Mm -hmm. radio refused to play their next song. And, you know, I, there were so many takeaways um, for me in that those moments um, in the documentary, one being uh, just the different way we get our news now. You know, I didn't sit down in front of the TV and wa- like, how would I have known about that event, the, the burning of the albums? I'm sure it was covered on the news and in the newspaper, maybe on the radio, but I wasn't glued to the radio unless my parents mentioned it. I don't know how I would have known about it. Uh, versus if it happened now and my youngest daughter was, we would have much more uh, information. We'd see it in real time. We would have seen the, I mean, gosh, when we watched that footage of the people storming the field and I don't know about you guys, but it was just a little reminiscent about what we've experienced mm-hmm. in the last in June, few months yeah. in Minneapolis. July, and, yeah. um, just that mob mentality and, um, and just what could happen. But I felt like um, if social media had been around then, what would or wouldn't have been have changed? What would have been different about just all of that? Would it have better or worse? And, well, yeah, and I don't know. Thrown out of control or would there have been more people to rally? It just would have been documented more because mm-hmm. I don't see that the hate and the intolerance is a lot different now, sadly. Mm-hmm. I just felt like what I hated about it was um, to me – 
music and I, I have like, I have pretty specific music tastes and they're pretty, you know, white bread music tastes. I love eighties pop and I, love, you know, I love yacht rock and I, <laughs> I'm not like real eclectic in my music taste, but I appreciate all genres of music and all forms because to me, music is a form of expression and it's a, it's an art form. Yeah. And so when I was watching that, I was just kind of horrified at the hate and intolerance of, of, of it all. And of, I don't care if you don't like disco. I don't like rap music. I'm not going to yeah, go right. burn why a rap music because I appreciate, yeah, right. Because I appreciate the rap artists. I appreciate the people that like it just because that's different than me. And I don't choose to listen to it. Doesn't mean it's bad music or that, you know what I mean? So I sadly didn't see that. I, I could actually see something like that happening today. I know. Yeah. And the artist, he was naming the artist that he saw going into this dumpster. He was naming Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. Smokey Gay, Robinson. Smokey Robinson. Al mm-hmm. Green. I mean, these mm-hmm. are people who are obviously now. I do love all that 40 music. Years, 40 years later, we know that those people are yeah. um, gods. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying yeah. to think of yeah. Right? Those are really important people to our history, yeah. to all people's history. And those well, people. all music is. Like, yes. Right. All genres of music are important mm-hmm. to our history. All of it. And right. what um, what we know now, I think, after the fact, because there were 900,000 comments on Barry Gibbs' um, social media the following day, that they continued to be beloved. They were beloved. But what happened in that era when you didn't get played on the radio is it didn't matter how many people loved you. If they didn't know about you, they can't buy your right. records. Right. You could really be blackballed by just a... Yeah small number Mm -hmm. of people because even that event so my husband lived um, on the north shore of chicago of chicago and uh, when all that was happening and it was like yeah that guy was just this shock jock in his radio station the format changed to disco where he had kind of gotten his big um you know that's where he was known from so when they he got let go because he didn't fit with their new genre um that's where his hatred of disco mm-hmm. came and that's kind of how he oh. um tried to get his new following on his new radio station mm-hmm. so um i thought that was really interesting too cuz it was this one shock jock guy who had a lot of fans um who just was able to again that kind of mob mentality and just get mm-hmm. everybody all stirred up um but he yeah, was, radio. He was still. I lived in Chicago in the '90s, and he was still on the radio then. Yeah. Ugh. Is he? He's not still, is he? I don't think so. But that's a good. He question. has. Um. Actually, I looked him up because I was so mad at him. You know, after I watched <laughs> mm-hmm. that, and I needed to figure out what what he was doing. Um. And he has. I think he has a podcast, like um, group of shows or something. Like mm. he has an umbrella of podcasts, maybe if I'm not mistaken. Um. And he's. I'm sure getting a lot more questions about mm-hmm. all of this, but he, you know, basically, I mean, he defends himself saying he hated disco because he got fired from this radio station, not because he was homophobic and racist and all those things. And he goes off on uh. all of that. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, but he's still around and obviously must have enough um, fans or whatever to have a successful podcast company, but yeah, we don't like him. It sounds to me like he knows the role that he played. Oh, oh gosh. Yeah. Because he was a kid. You could tell he was a kid who was just like sowing his wild oats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what happened after that is they knew that they couldn't stop making music. Um, and so they continued and they did it in a very underground way where they just wrote for other people. Yes. I mean, brilliant, so right? Right. That was, I mean, a lot of them I knew about, but a lot of them I didn't. Me too. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? Celine Dion, who knew? I know. Well, you guys are probably going to go, uh, me. <laughs> but I, didn't. I, know I knew all the Barbara Streisand. Obviously, we all knew the Barbara Streisand right, stuff. Right. But like, um, but that's what's so brilliant about him. And that's what makes me and my husband and I had this conversation after that makes us think that that if you think of all of it, all the way from back in the 60s when they wore the pirate shirts and whatever, all the way to now where they're writing for all these really popular people. And, and once that happened after 79... Um, just utilizing their talents in different ways makes them ha- makes them, if not the most influential group in history, in the top like three, five. I mean, I it has agree. to be, and and maybe they are. Maybe I'm just yeah. ignorant, and everyone's like, yeah, obviously, Michelle, that's um, they are. But like, so. I don't know that if someone 
before I watched this documentary, I don't know if someone said to me, name, name five of the most influential musical artists of all time. I don't think the Bee Gees would have come out of my mouth. And now for sure it would. And now it will. And that mm-hmm. is the power. Okay, so Frank Marshall, director, person, you have to know what you have done for the Bee Gees by making this documentary because you, the legacy is there. It We don't have to make the legacy. The legacy is there. But to have people know about it and acknowledge it, I think is a really important thing, especially for this man, um, you know, who's lost his entire family, right? Yeah. And he's at the end of his career. Um, the fact that he has this new album out is is very uplifting to me because it's like man this 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 musical strain that runs through them just won't quit yeah he keeps going quit and i like how he said this is very astute he said we weren't disco they were the face of disco (laughs) they were making music that people could dance to but the garbage that people were objecting to was not the bgs but that was just um an oversaturation. Oh, I think Chris Martin had a great a great line. What did he say? Um, oh, Chris Martin, where did it go? Oh, she's looking for it. Carolyn, we get to sing again. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I know what he said. <laughs> Basically, oh. what Chris Martin said is that when something is that big, sometimes the only interesting thing there is to say about it is that you don't like it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that became the cool thing. That became the cool thing to say. Um, and now I told Well, it's like bullies. Right. Yeah. Bullies. That's what you said. We didn't we all tell our kids that yeah. people that say mean things to you are just mm-hmm. um, they don't like themselves inside. Yeah. And that's all people wanted to do. OK, so what Barry Gibbs said was we were not disco. We had we defied categorization. We had eras. We didn't play a certain kind of music. We had eras of different kinds of music that we made because they started in the early 60s. And here he is today recording with country artists. Yes. They're Which not disco. Really? There's. They were songwriters, I think, at yeah. heart. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I had no idea they wrote all of those songs. I just thought they sang them mm-hmm. in the 70s. You know, I had no idea of their songwriting prowess. And really, I almost felt like that's what Barry and the end would want, want them to be remembered for, is mm-hmm. the, the words and the stories that yeah. they told through their music. And they just happened to be able to sing these different kinds of music. So they were able to fit in at different times of... Um, different kind of music popularity. So they could be disco. They could be that kind of 70s melancholy, mm-hmm. uh, sad songs that we're going to talk about. they were creators. Um, they were absolutely right. creators. Exactly. So one of the most profound moments of the documentary came during that um, 1979 concert. At the very end, they're interspersing it with the disco sucks. And Andy is on stage with mm-hmm. them. And of course, I'm just dying looking at these four brothers together just riding this wave just riding it right and they're interviewing Morris and he says Andy turned to me and he said can you believe this shit and like they were so they couldn't believe what was happening they're looking at all those people and going they like what we're doing I can't believe it and then Morris says this is the way it's got to be as in Andy has to be with us he has to be Mm -hmm. one of us this is the way it's got to be and then right before he's made a BG, he dies. And that's when I cry. And that's when we move on to the end of the documentary. And just thinking of the foreshadowing in that moment, because as viewers, we've watched this going back and forth from the um, event at Comiskey Park to, you know, just all, you kind of know what's coming down the pipe when yeah. he's saying that. And mm-hmm. it's just, oh, it's heartbreaking to know what could have been. It is heartbreaking. That is exactly right. Um, So the documentary ends with we're back in Miami 2019. You see the sparkling of the water just like it was in the very beginning. And it's Barry's voice again. And he says, there's just one thing that I want to say. I'd rather have them all back here and no hits at all. I was like, yeah, goosebumps, but also like your heart just drops. It really does. My That's, thighs have goosebumps right now, you guys. No. Is it the wine or is it the... No, that was... No, it's um, not. And yeah. That's yeah. when I started crying and texting people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, are you guys up? Are you waiting? Well, do you feel... Do you, Okay, so do you feel sated now, Kristen? We got our conversation. Thanks for indulging me, you guys. Yeah. I appreciate it. So I'm welcome. so glad to... I mean, I, w- I think I would have watched it. I don't know if I would have watched it yet, but 
it just, it, it brought back so many memories, so many songs that I had forgotten about. Um, and just, just knowing their story now, I don't know, it just gives them so much more depth and just makes them, it's almost like I kind of wish I had known that back then, but I was too young. I wouldn't okay. have you know, I think we appreciated um, it back then. So it's but. hitting you at the exact right time. This is the yeah, and also, aren't we lucky? And aren't we lucky to have like you know, like I said, my daughter was watching it, who's twenty five, and you mm-hmm. know, I think you know, who knows? I mean, she could have been like, oh, those are great songs, whatever, but whatever, and and we'll never listen to another BG song again. Maybe she will, but for us, we have so many memories attached to these songs that yeah. watching this documentary now, knowing the depth of this story, yeah. um, aren't we lucky to? to be able to remember back and remember skating at the roller rink to those songs and remember all of the things that we were talking about. Absolutely. And for my son, watching it with my 18 year old, who is a musician, I felt Mm. I was so excited to be able to share that with him because it could be that if he hadn't watched this with me, he would think of the Bee Gees as disco performers, but he Mm -hmm. doesn't. He sees Mm -hmm. them, said Michelle, as, you know, one of the top most influential bands of all time. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. What a gift. And for you to get to experience that with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's pretty powerful. Can he play Massachusetts oh, for me sometime? I'll work That's on right. That can you record Liam yeah. playing Massachusetts for me sometime? That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Be well, one last thing to kind of bring it um, back to Sean. Did you happen to see what Sean Cassidy wrote and posted after the, um, about the documentary? No. So of course he, he posted that picture. Oh that, yes. Oh my God. My mm-hmm. heart. Ouch. With, um, so the picture I'm showing yeah. is all of the um, the Gibb brothers, including Andy, and he's in the middle. But um, he wrote that um, he's, he just watched the documentary twice, and he found the experience to be profoundly emotional. Yes, it's definitely about one of the world's great pop groups, and, and, and many of us know and love their songs. But for me, the thing that resonated most was the extraordinarily magical and complicated relationships relationship between these brothers and the deep love they had for each other. I knew Andy quite well and was fortunate to have met Barry Robin and Morris and Morris while watching. I often thought of my brother, David, but also of Patrick and Ryan. There is no relationship quite like that of siblings. And I cherish mine. The next time I'm in Miami, I'm going to reach out to Barry. I think we might have something to talk about. I think we're going to let Sean Cassidy have the last word. I think so. Mm-hmm. So it's it all a- comes back to Sean, you guys. I know. Well, every podcast <laughs> ends with Sean. <laughs> Thank you for Sean. listening, everybody. And please join us next time when we'll be saving Judy Bloom for real this time. <laughs> In the meantime, raise your glasses, ladies, and let's have a toast, courtesy of Janet, Chrissy, and Jack Tripper, to good times, to happy days, to Little House on the Prairie. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. Bye, you guys. Hello, world. is a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. Information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to me, the Crushologist, and Carolyn and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, I guess there's always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded at Modern Well, a woman-centered co-working space in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. Come on, get